Hello and welcome to the June 30th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. My name is Romy Kokratsky and I'm here with my colleague Anthony Bardaway. Hello everybody. We've got a really big slate of news to get through uh, this time around with uh, quite a few things happening <laughs> since we did our last episode. So let's jump right into it. And uh, as always, we're going to start with a quick rundown of how the combat situation on the front is going and what gains have been made in the much-hyped counteroffensive. Yeah, so as we've always been going over, the uh, operational security on the counteroffensive is very, very tight. Any amount of news that we get from any of the front is at best a few days old by the time we get it. So we cannot give, you know, the block-by-block rundown that we could with uh, Bakhmut, for example, or other counteroffensives that took place. This is all very, very hush-hush and just need to give that uh, that stipulation ahead of time. But what we can say is that there seems to be a broad offensive throughout the entirety of the southern half of the, uh, the front with, with Russia. Um, so if we look at Bakhmut, for example, that offensive is ongoing and that is taking place without the help of these additionally super modernized, super well-trained units that came in for the counteroffensive. The Bakhmut area is still only the uh, troops assigned to the local area from the general military. But even so, they are continuing to make progress around the flanks of Bakhmut city. Uh, It is not well known if they will ever try to attack the city itself, just because it seems like that is a good trap to have Russians in if they can be surrounded. Just keep them there. There's not much of a city left anyway to save. So I'm hoping what they do is turn it into a shooting gallery. They have very nearly retaken the town of Klashivka, which was the Russians' command post in the southern part of the Bakhmut area. They have gotten very close to cutting it off from Bakhmut city. And I think that within the coming weeks, we will see a retake of Lashivka, which will lead uh, Ukraine to be able to then move on to the highway into Bakhmut. Uh, So all these problems of Ukraine getting gradually surrounded in Bakhmut that took place over the last few months are about to be reversed and about to happen to Russia instead. Uh, similarly, without looking at like the, the fresh counteroffensive forces, uh, Avdivka, there has been some small counteroffensives around Avdivka, uh, retaking some of the smaller villages in its immediate surroundings, uh, relieving the city somewhat of the cauldron that it was put in. But as for the, you know, the modern, full, counter, proper counteroffensive, we can call it. We are looking at uh, three main uh, prongs going into Russian territory. These are Stepovo, Novodanilovka, and Velkia Novoselka. Um, progress is being made in all of these directions. Uh, it is slow, uh, much to the consternation of Ukraine's Western partners, who are constantly complaining about how slow this is going. But it is a steady progress that has not really let up. Uh, since the counteroffensive began. Um, and again, we can't give too many details about those because we simply don't know. And finally, if we look at Kherson, uh, we talked about Kherson in the last episode. 
um, the horrible damage that was done to that city and its surroundings. But we can give an update for the combat situation there in that Ukraine has made a crossing of the Dnipro River at what used to be the Antonovsky Bridge uh, on the town of Dachi. Uh, in the past, Ukraine has raided into this territory before. Um, it's always, always been very brief. Uh, when this has happened in previous episodes, I said, this is just a raid. Don't worry about it. But it seems like in this case, Ukraine has made a bridgehead over the Dnipro River that they have held for the last week and are potentially moving on to Oleshki, depending on the size of the force that Ukraine decides to put into that bridgehead. This has mostly been able to take place because Russia has uh, removed many of its combat forces from the Kherson region in order to repel the Ukrainian offensive around uh, Zaporizhia and the western parts of Donetsk Oblast. Uh, this is what happened with uh, Kherson and Kharkiv offensives of last year, you know, where Russia thought they needed troops to be. Um, in this case, Kherson, uh, by moving troops to Kherson, they took troops away from Kharkiv, which allowed for the Kharkiv offensive. And that is starting to repeat again, which is the general idea of this counteroffensive, which is to attack everything, see where the Russians are weak, see where the Russians will replace their forces, and wherever they decide to make themselves weaker to strengthen somewhere else, strike the weak point. And that is basically what we're able to see from what we know. Uh, furthermore, we can say that only about 20% of the uh, gathered forces for the counteroffensive have been committed. 80% of them are still held in reserve for future use. And of the things that we do know, we can we can kind of say this is a bit like jazz. What are the notes that aren't playing? And when Russia gains a victory, they like to publicize it and publish video of it. In this case, they simply have not done so. There was one video from the very beginning of the counteroffensive of them destroying several uh, combat armored combat vehicles, uh, which, by the way, some of them have since been recovered and repaired and put back into the field. And they keep playing that video on repeat over and over again. So kind of leads me to assume that that's about all they got. But speaking of rather humorous failures on the part of the Russian military, uh, we have to get to our top story of the week which was the failed Russian, the failed coup attempt by Wagner Group. Um, it's called by our friend at Spaghetti Kozak Media, a coup de blot. This is probably going to be the meat of this week's episode, simply because it kind of showcased um, all of Russia's failure in kind of this single series of events. So um, let, let's start from the top. Yeah, let's give just a overview of what we absolutely do know what happened and then save the uh, pontification for afterwards. So late at night on June 23rd, the Wagner mercenary group led by Yevgeny Prohoshin, often nicknamed Putin's chef. He's not actually a chef. He simply was the guy who handled the catering for the Kremlin. Apparently, that was considered a high status position in Russia. Um, but he also uh, later was given the Wagner Mercenary Group to found, also known as Wagner BMC, which 
Russia used as a proxy um, in various conflicts, notably in Syria and Africa, to do soldier of fortune things, you know, provide bodyguards for um, gold hoarding warlords, uh, guarding oil facilities in the Middle East and so on. Typical mercenary stuff, but things that the Russian government wanted to do but didn't want to do openly that use Wagner for. Well, for the um, pretty much entirety of the full scale invasion, Wagner has been loggerheads with the actual Russian Ministry of Defense, with Wagner very often um, accusing the Ministry of Defense of withholding supplies, withholding intelligence, not coordinating with them. This ultimately culminated, uh, well, again, according to Prohosian, that the Ministry of Defense actually attacked a couple of rear bases that Wagner was holding, killing a bunch of uh, Wagner mercenaries. Now, we don't know if that's true or not. And the video they provided seems pretty fake. Yeah, that's the, that's the story that Wagner is going with anyway. Um, so on the night of the 23rd, uh, Wagner gets a bunch of guys together. They pull off a bunch of their mercenaries from these rear bases and they drive into Rostov, um, which is right across the border from Ukraine. Um, Rostov on Don. It's a decent sized city, million plus population. And Wagner are kind of greeted as liberators in this city with people plotting them. They they managed to take basically all of the um, police and military uh, stations in Rostov. And Rostov is one of the centers, along with Belgorod, of the um, Russian war effort. It's where a lot of military stuff is concentrated before it's sent on further to Ukraine. But Wagner was able to stroll in and pretty much just seized entire control of the city. And they were welcomed for it. The Russian police didn't do anything. The Russian military didn't do anything. The Russian National Guard, um, also known as Roskvardia, they didn't do anything. And Wagner used this momentum to uh, conduct what they called the March of Justice. Um, officially, Prigozhin, uh, Prigozhin lets out a rant about um, the uh, about uh, Sergei Shoigu, the uh, Minister of Defense, and Valery Gerasimov, uh, the chief of staff for the Russian military, basically accusing them of being um, incompetent traitors. Uh, and that they wanted uh, justice, they wanted these guys out of power, they wanted them deposed, and that they were going to head to Moscow to do it, and that they would um, not stop if they were confronted by the Russian military or uh, Russian authorities. And that's and exactly I want to point out in this speech as well that he's accused the defense ministry of basically lying about the reasons that Russia went to war, uh, saying that, you know, the whole issue of Ukraine being Nazis was all made up and that they were lying about Russian casualties by like a factor of, of four internally and like 10 externally. So it was pretty intense stuff. And as uh, as a result, um, they gathered together and they started driving to Moscow um, in a column estimated about uh, 25,000 men along with uh, equipment. Uh, and there were um, firefights and conflicts on the way. Um, of course, a lot of this is difficult to confirm, but we do have uh, confirmations that they shot down a very expensive aerial command post of which Russia has, I believe, single digits of and they don't deploy them into Ukraine. Um, they keep them back in Russia. Uh, because it turns out air defense can down these very expensive things and that killed quite a few people. Um, they also downed a bunch of very expensive helicopters, which Russia has been running low on because, again, these helicopters get shot down Ukraine at a very 
um, pleasing for us rate. And of course, there are unconfirmed reports of actual firefights on the road itself, though uh, those are difficult to to confirm. But we do have images of the helicopters downed and of the um, debris from the aerial command post. Um, So we can definitely say uh, people died and Wagner did shoot on Russian military forces and killed them. Um, But they were able to do it. They got all the way almost to Moscow. They stopped about 120 kilometers short after um, basically rapid, desperate negotiations uh, between um, Russian dictator Vladimir Putin and Prokhorin, mediated by, of all people, um, Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko, who has um, kind of been uh, sidelined in this whole conflict. Putin has used Belarus as um, basically Russian territory, basing soldiers there, um, taking over training camps, conducting trainings, quartering soldiers in Belarusian cities, um, launching missile attacks. And, and Lukashenko has not really had much of a say in this. But in this role, um, he apparently was the only credible mediator between Putin and Prokhorin that could be found. And he reportedly convinced Prokhorin to uh, stop his march in exchange for a deal. Apparently, uh, he and Prigozhin are buddies, I guess. I didn't know that before, but apparently. Kind of assume they're all buddies. They're they're all the Russian elite. Um, they all send their kids to the same Swiss schools and bang their mistresses in the same St. Petersburg hotels. So I kind of assume they all know each other. But in any case, once they uh, as they get to almost almost Moscow again, they were 120 kilometers from Moscow and they'd encountered no significant resistance. They were not able to neutralize. Um, Prigozhin turned around. He says, um, you know, we're not. This isn't a coup. Really, guys, this isn't a coup. We're not here to depose the Tsar. I'm sorry, the president. Um, and we just wanted to to let. Um, the Ministry of Defense, and the Russian authorities know that we're serious about justice. But of course, they were able to to neutralize any uh, opposition and they just stopped at this 120 kilometer point from Moscow uh, after these rapid fire negotiations. Um, reportedly, and again, um, it's difficult to say what the truth here is. We are talking about Russia, which is um, not known as a bastion of transparency and honesty under the best of circumstances. But reportedly, the deal was that Prigozhin would not be charged and executed as a traitor for inciting an insurrection and trying to uh, usurp um, control of the government, uh, along with all of his um, Wagner soldiers that participated in this March for Justice. They would be allowed to um, decamp to Belarus as a form of I suppose, exile Um, while Wagner uh, troops that did not participate in this mutiny, coup, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, um, they would be uh, given the chance to sign a new contract with the Russian Ministry of Defense. And this seems to have diffused the situation. Um, Prigozhin turned around. uh, Rostov was relinquished, I believe, back to uh, Russian authorities. Though there are reports that Wagner is still holding some of the facility, military facilities within Rostov. Again, this is a lot of this stuff is very difficult to confirm. And people are saying this, that and the other. 
And without physically being in being in Russia, um, it's difficult to say what the actual truth of the matter is. What we do know, however, is that Wagner, um, at least some Wagner units did um, come back to their bases in Ukraine. Uh, and the situation kind of ended not with a bang, but with a whimper. Well, here's what we know of the the responses that people have had to this incident. And I think a good one to look at to look at uh, Russia's international standing is from Kazakhstan. Now, there was uh, attempted overthrow of the government in Kazakhstan very shortly uh, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as a part of that, Kazakhstan activated uh, the Collective Security Treaty Organization guarantees to defend their country, and Russia sent troops to protect the Kazakh government. Um, when Russia did the same thing now, reaching out to Kazakhstan for support, Kazakhstan said, no, this is an internal matter. Which was hilarious to me because Russia just did this for Kazakhstan, and Kazakhstan does not have any intention of sticking their neck out to do it for Russia. And we've talked about this with Central Asia before, just a good thing to note. Um, another good thing to see is what happened within the Russian elite. And very notably, um, it did take Putin a, a quite amount of time in order to give a statement on this, on this, uh, on this action. And before then, no one really wanted to say anything. Um, one person who did was General Sorovikin, who was the former overall commander of the Russian war effort in the winter. He was in charge of the uh, winter missile campaign uh, with the power outages and all that. That's his responsibility. And there was some speculation before this that he was very, very close to Wagner Group and even may have known about the coup beforehand. Uh, but he was the one of the very few people to make a statement against the coup as it was happening. Um, and since then, he has actually been arrested for his um, supposed uh, connections to Wagner and to the coup, though we don't really know much about that. But it seems as though he was arrested, questioned and released. But we we just don't know. Um, other than that, everyone else was very quiet. Uh, many of the Russian government heads had actually fled Moscow. Putin himself seemed to have left for St. Petersburg on his private jet um, because they, everyone was afraid of this being the real thing. There Again, there, there was no real opposition to Wagner. Um, if they hadn't stopped, if this deal wasn't struck, it is completely within reason to to imagine that. Wagner would have been able to drive straight up to the Kremlin with basically zero resistance. Yeah, they threw up like barricades. They tore up their roads, which Russia does not have a lot of good roads to begin with. So RIP to their decent roads. Um, so this whole time, uh, it really seemed like the Russian elite expected this to be a bloody coup before it turned out not to be. Which, though we have to keep in mind that Moscow is a gigantic city, there were still some special forces sent back to Moscow to defend it. But they seem to have an idea that it, even if the coup would have failed, and I kind of knew immediately that it would have failed, uh, the, they, they were still very afraid. And that says a lot about 
the the potential for Ukraine launching attacks within Russia. But we'll get into that in our speculation area. Um, again, Lukashenko turned out to be the one who brokered the deal. Um, so Belarus did play a very important role and is now the home to the leftovers of the Wagner Group. And it's any question what they will do in Belarus. Within Ukraine, there was applauding and joking because this was funny. Uh, it was great to see Russia tear itself apart. It was it was very, very funny. Um, and that's what we know as facts. Um, the rest of it, this is going to be pretty much just blatant speculation because uh, at, at this stage, it's been um, about a week, pretty much exactly seven days uh, since the attempted mutiny coup insurrection thing. Uh, and uh, things have, have calmed down, settled down. Uh, it seems except for the purges. Apparently there's purges going on in the military, but yes. All we have left now is to do a bit of Kremlinology. Um, so let's start. Anthony, what was the point? So what was the point? I think that this was a bunch of people who made a bunch of assumptions and all of those assumptions were wrong. I think that uh, Prigozhin's initial instinct here was that he'd be able to uh, take on uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov and the Ministry of Defense, and that Putin would kind of stand aside and allow this internal conflict to happen. And then once the dust settles, Putin would kind of crown the victor and move on from there. I think that Prigozhin thought that he would not be taking on the full might of the state, just Shoigu specifically and Gerasimov. Uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov were both uh, in Rostov at the time in the Southern Command Center. So Rostov, for those who don't know, it is so the Southern Command of the Russian military um, is probably the most important command center directing the war against Ukraine. Um, it had been since 2014. The puppet authorities in Donbass were pretty much uh, directly run out of Rostov. Uh, Ross, the Southern Command is the main show here, and everything else is just a sideshow. So Prigozhin thought he would take the Southern Command, which he did. Uh, and since Shoigu and Gerasimov would be there, he could probably hold them hostage, make them sign some paper. Uh, saying they resigned. Basically, what happened here is uh, raiding. We've talked about this before in the context of uh, mafia activity, of uh, black market economics. A raid is when a mafia group busts into a territory, uh, a business, uh, with fake papers saying that they're the people who actually own the place, and they force the person who actually owns it to sign them. Uh, or otherwise squat there and threaten anyone with guns to tell them otherwise. I think that's exactly what happened here. I think that by taking the Southern Command, by capturing the the leaders of the Ministry of Defense, he could effectively do a raid on the Ministry of, Ministry of Defense and get what he wanted from it. Uh, in this case, he was afraid of Wagner Group being disbanded and absorbed into the Ministry of Defense. Uh, so the first priority would have been getting that decision canceled and then having uh, one of his guys, possibly Lisa Rafikin, 
um, installed as the Minister of Defense or something like that in their place. However, that then came the Putin speech. And in the Putin speech, something that I kind of expected would come later on, uh, Putin said, no, uh, this is a this is a assault. This is like 1917. Uh, this is a revolution against the proper government. These people are traitors. And I don't think that he I don't think that Prigozhin expected that to happen. Um, so when Putin came out against him, it then became Prigozhin against the entire Russian government, the entire Russian system, as opposed to just him against Shoigu and Gerasimov. Uh, so when he got to, he, he kept going on to Moscow, hoping that something would break. But I think that he, by the end, he realized that an attack on Moscow would have been suicidal for him 100% and needed a way out. In the meantime, I think that Putin really did not see anything like this coming. I thought that I'm sure that he thought his system was completely coup proof. Prigozhin was his guy. Prigozhin was his Mr. Fix-It. Prigozhin was his person he needed. Uh, if he wanted anything done, Prigozhin would be the one to get it done. And his number one tool is what turned against him. And Putin is a guy who really does not like it when people betray him. Uh, this had been multiple assassination attempts uh, and successful assassinations of those who have. Um, so I think Putin didn't see it coming. I think that um, Prigozhin did not see Putin's response coming. And I don't think that it was just a uh, it was a, just a big collapse in every direction, really. That's one take on it. Um, my take is is kind of similar, uh, but I think that there are players in this game that we haven't really seen. Um, the military are not the only power players in what passes for the Russian government or more accurately, the Tsar's court, Putin's court. Um, and a lot of the non-military folks have probably felt quite slighted for the year and a half, not to mention losing large chunks of their power and influence. Um, quite a few Russian oligarchs uh, owned pretty major businesses in Ukraine. Some of them still own pretty major businesses in Ukraine, even if those businesses are currently sanctioned or being unraveled um, or are under investigation. Russia had a lot of economic interests in Ukraine and further than Ukraine. Russia had a lot of economic interests in Europe. Trade with Europe is practically zero, um, aside from rebuying Russian oil branded as Azeri oil from Azerbaijan. There is no real trade going on um, between Russia and its largest trading partner. The influence that Russian oligarchs had in Ukraine has been nullified. Their economy has been in a free fall. They've survived solely due to the fact that the West is unwilling or unable to seriously enforce uh, penalties for sanctions evasions. But make no mistake, the the lives that these oligarchs had built in the West with their networks of um, mistresses and villas and uh, secret families and jets and yachts. So all of that is gone. And I don't think Prigozhin was acting wholly on his own initiative um, when, he, when he started this march for justice. To be honest, I think some of this conflict between the Ministry of Defense and Wagner is exaggerated, not staged, but exaggerated, because the fact is Wagner is not a mercenary company 
as we understand it. It is um, more accurate to say that Wagner is a pirate company. Uh, during the age of discovery, uh, monarchs would often give um, basically admirals with their own navies a letter of mark saying you can go out and be pirates. And as long as you tithe a portion of the booty back to me, um, we're not going to prosecute you. You can, you know, build palatial estates in our capital cities. You can marry into the nobility um, and we're not we're as long as you focus your um, raiding and slaving and pirating on our enemies, we are not going to go after you. Um, I think that is more the situation that we're looking for. Uh, Prigozhin and Putin are or were very close friends. And the entire reason that Prigozhin specifically has control on Wagner, he didn't found this on his own initiative. He didn't wake up this guy who owns a bunch of catering companies and say, you know what? I want to be a mercenary warlord. Uh, no, Putin specifically chose him as his most loyal retainer. That is the person that Putin trusted the most to not use a heavily militarized group against him um, in order for Russia to uh, earn like money bodyguarding African warlords and um, make sure that Rosneft assets in Syria don't get blown up, um, which would be, like I said before, diplomatically difficult to do uh, with the Russian military itself. So Wagner is not really a separate private entity. It's not something like Blackwater, which owns outright its own equipment and it can act completely independently of the U.S. government. The U.S. government can sue um, Blackwater for doing shady mercenary stuff. Um, but it is a private entity. Wagner is not, and it never was. Um, it is at best a, a pirate entity. As a result, a lot of these complaints, oh, we're not being uh, funded well enough, we're not being supplied well enough, don't really make a lot of sense because you were only ever going to be supplied by the Russian military. So Wagner cannot purchase its own heavy equipment. It cannot purchase its own ammunition. Under Russian law, mercenary companies are illegal, meaning in Russia, Wagner cannot operate as a mercenary company, it can't buy guns, it can't close contracts, it can't even open bank accounts. It's illegal. Uh, it can only do so outside. And obviously in Russia, it has it does all of this um, through either uh, shell companies or just through the Ministry of Defense itself. So I think a lot of that conflict is overrated. But what's not overrated is the fact that these guys, every single power player in Russia is a um, bloodthirsty barracuda literally waiting for the second someone stumbles. Uh, and I think that Wagner or rather uh, a let's say the the disgruntled oligarchs that used to that have pretty much lost almost everything that they had built their entire lives and careers around in Europe have decided to kind of force the issue and make the Kremlin and the Tsar realize that the Tsar is in some way beholden to these guys. Um, Putin has been very good about handing out favor, just the right amount of favors to keep all these guys under their thumbs. But again, that deal is broken. The deal was that he would give them 
favors. He would give them diplomatic defenses. He would propagandize them. And in return, they would take a bunch of money and give him his share. But that's done now. Uh, all of all of the things that they worked for is gone. And I think that this was a attempted show to the Tsar that, listen, um, you, we need a new deal. We we like we deserve a new deal. We need a new deal. Uh, but Prigozhin being not someone who actually wanted to coup, um, that is one thing that he said that I do believe. I don't think he ever intended to overthrow uh, Putin to seize control of the country. Prigozhin, just like everyone else in Russia, fully understands that the only reason that Russia is not right now an all out bloody civil war is because Putin's alive. And the second he stops being alive, every single old deal, every single promise and favor, all of that becomes null and void. And it's a free fall. Um, so uh, he was this close and kind of allowed himself to be convinced into this deal with Lukashenko. I mean, he had no reason to take it. There was nothing offered in the reportedly in the deal that would have gotten him off. I mean, if he kept going to Moscow, it doesn't matter if Putin said, OK, you are you know, being charged with treason. Well, I'm the guy sitting on the throne. So, no, no, no there was nothing in that deal that really required Prigozhin to take. Aside from Prigozhin's own understanding that he didn't want to be the Tsar because that would immediately kick off a civil war um, and they have a genocide to complete. So I think all in all, it was uh, kind of this show of force uh, from the, the disaffected oligarchs in, in Russia that went a little further than people expected, um, but at the same time, probably didn't go far enough to actually proving their point. Things got a little out of hand. But also not out of hand enough, I feel. Right. Yeah. So from there, we can talk about uh, what we can expect in the future from this. And the first thing to say is obviously this uh, was a serious blow to the legitimacy of the Putin regime. He's weak now. Everyone sees him as weak. Everyone, even in Russia, he is seen as as weak. Blood is in the water. And if, if they can't find a way to clamp down on it soon, the, the issue here is that nobody, one thing that Putin has been very successful at is making it so no one person is exceptionally in good place to launch a, a, like a revolution of some kind. Prigozhin um, was one of the few that was, uh, Kadyrov is another, um, but the thing here is that throughout this war, there has been a gradual uh, shift towards using these PMCs, these mercenary companies. Um, they are, in, many in, in some cases, controlled directly by the Ministry of Defense, yes, but they are private armies controlled by companies, controlled by oligarchs. And while none of these were at the level of Prigozhin's level of independence, they're still private armies. Uh, there was talk, for example, of uh, using mercenaries as border guards in Russia, literally controlling the borders of the country, being left to these mercenaries. And I did a rant about that uh, a few episodes ago. But what this means is there is a diffusion of power. There is a weakening of the state monopoly on the ability to do violence. And when that happens, that means your your country, your state is starting to unravel. And what happened here is that 
Well, again, I don't see anyone else having the ability to launch this kind of coup the way Prigozhin did. Everyone saw that he went straight from Rostov all the way to Moscow without any difficulty. It meant that when Putin's back was against the wall, when the Russian system's back was against the wall, they did not crush these people outright like they probably should have. What they did was negotiate and find a way out through diplomacy and making and cutting deals in order to avoid the worst. And people will see that they have the ability to not make as big of deals, perhaps, but the ability to negotiate with the center of power using guns. And that is the prelude to civil war. And mind you, a lot of the these kind of semi-independent factions in Russia, notably Kadyrov, well, Kadyrov immediately said, you know what, like I'm on the I'm backing the Tsar. His uh, units that he sent to reinforce Moscow reportedly did not arrive until after Prigozhin had called off the march. Um, and not because they couldn't. They have helicopters and rapid transit. Um, they could have deployed into Moscow pretty much immediately, uh, but they didn't for a reason because uh, and it wasn't just Kadyrov. There are a number of um, there are a number of parties that could have immediately acted that did not because everyone was waiting to see who the winner was before they chose a side. And that is typically a bad sign for a dictator. <laughs> yeah, that is not an institution based system that is a system based on uh, independent power blocks that have the ability to potentially, in this case, actually shoot at each other. I mean, Russia is a, as we see, to be honest, a, a feudal society. Um, feudal lords did not immediately answer their uh, their like king's call to arms. Uh, that typically means that king isn't going to be in the throne for much longer. Yeah. And so what we saw was so what we said in Rostov, what happened was that there is this huge outflowing of support for Wagner Group. And there are some particularities about Rostov that would lead to this kind of thing. Like I said, it was a hub of the Southern Command has is very intimately connected with the war. So. They hear about all the stories of the, the the daring do of Wagner, and of course, that's kind of makes them folk heroes there. And Rostov, in particular, is a serious center for the Russian far right. It's a serious center for the Russian Cossack militia movements. Um, it's very politicized and militant in that way. And those are the kind of people who like Wagner more than anyone else. So Rostov was a natural constituency for him. Um, and so Putin tried or Putin or perhaps, a uh, a Putin lookalike went to Dagestan, which is probably the, the region of Russia that is most prone to, to a future rebellion that is most prone to ripping itself away from the Russian Federation. And they had to do like a big show of how everyone loves Putin there. It, which is something that Putin doesn't do. He does not go out into the public. And I still think he didn't go out into public. It was clearly staged, but he made a show of him going out into the public and and really doing this whole uh, goodwill gesture to show that everyone still loves him. And it, it was obviously desperate. So now um, we will 
pretty much just see who the next power player to shake things up is going to be. Um, Prigozhin has made uh, a few statements. He still seems to be at loggerheads with the Ministry of Defense. Um, he's been spotted in both Minsk and in St. Petersburg, though uh, we do we we do have confirmation that his private plane uh, did land in Minsk. Uh, so while he's not out of the game yet, he is um, not likely to to make a, a serious showing uh, for a while. But the cracks are now visible to anyone who can see it. Um, definitely the Ukrainian side. Uh, and the more losses Russia is going to take in this war, um, especially if they lose a major city that they've been occupying since 2014, such as any place in Crimea or Donetsk or Luhansk, um, I think we we will very shortly see more attempts like this, maybe not from Prigozhin, um, but from other uh, but definitely from other power players in Russia. And as much speculation as we can do, one thing that we, at least we do know is that the Wagner Group, which is the most effective fighting force within the Russian military, they are the only ones who have won any kind of victory in, in the last year plus, and they are simply no longer a part of the equation. And with that, we have some other stories from within Ukraine, as well as some international ones. Uh, that was, of course, the, the meat of our episode, but other things have happened that were quite important. Um, the first one that we can look at is uh, early, very early in the month, June 1st, there was a night attack on Kiev, and these are fairly regular, but this one produced a unique response, I should say. So one missile went to the Desnyaski district in the northern part of the left bank of Kiev, a very working class type neighborhood. And after this missile was shot down by the Patriot Missile Defense System, part of it fell into this uh, residential area, killing a mother and her child. Now, these, these two, along with others at the time, were trying to get into a shelter, but the shelter was locked. If they had been able to get into the shelter, they would have lived. Uh, it turned out that the night guardsman who was in charge of opening the shelter was drunk at the time and could not hear people trying to get in at the time. This, of course, led to a serious outrage in Kiev of finding who was responsible. So the first response and the person who ended up taking ultimate responsibility was this night guardsman who was arrested and uh, was given criminal charges of, of something to do with neglect in his job. Um, but also fingers were being pointed at the mayor, at the military authorities, at the, the rayon or like the neighborhood authorities, as well as the other persons involved most directly on the ground here, namely, again, the, the guardsman, number one. Uh, this led to an inspection of the shelters and something like 40% of shelters in Kiev were just simply not accessible. Many people are not in the habit of going to shelters. I don't personally. And it, for a long time, this led to complacency. This complacency was also seen uh, in, in the fall uh, when it seemed like a lot of the missile attacks were slowing down 
and a lot of the shelters were just kind of left alone. Uh, so there was so after this inspection again, big outrage, and the the attempts by civil society to get some kind of answer for what led to this kind of thing uh, continues. Unfortunately, there still is no proper response from any of the city authorities, but there is uh, still, of course, that outrage. Now, in my opinion, uh, having a situation where a single, let's face it, very poorly paid night guardsman who is probably a pensioner uh, otherwise being in charge of people's lives is not the kind of situation that you want to set up in the first place. These shelters should not be locked at all. Um, people had been complaining about uh, them being used for you know, storage or people are afraid that like bandits would get in. There's one thing I heard, but a shelter shouldn't be locked. It's not the kind of thing that an old person should have to wake up in the middle of the night to open. That is the worst kind of security uh, system possible. But this is not resolved. Hopefully it will be soon. Another uh, case of a missile attack was very recently. The Russians launched a missile at a pizzeria in Kramatorsk. Uh, this is not an especially unique case in the fact that Kramatorsk is struck constantly. It is almost right up on the front lines in Donbass. It is a major hub for uh, the military, for aid workers, for journalists. A lot of this is working out of uh, Kramatorsk and its neighboring city of Slovyansk. Um, and, but what made this get a bit more attention was that the missile struck uh, Pizzeria Ria in the center of the city. And this is one of the places that journalists, aid workers, um, foreign dignitaries often go to. It's a, it's, it's a hangout for those kinds of sorts of people. And by hitting this restaurant, we know that it killed at least 12 people. It injured upwards of 40 people. And these were people who were really the most connected types of people in the country as far as information goes. We know one victim was Victoria Amelina. Uh, she is in critical, critical condition, not dead, but in critical condition. She is the founder of the New York Literature Festival, the New York Ukraine Literature Festival, I should say, um, a, a frontline uh, cultural event that happens, again, directly on the front line with Russia. They, uh, the city of New York, Ukraine, they put a lot of work into um, boosting it as a cultural export of Ukraine. Uh, she is also a fantastic journalist, writer. Everyone seems to know her. I had actually just seen her a few days beforehand at the the Kiev uh, Arsenal, the Kiev uh, Book Arsenal Literature Festival. She was there, and I was at her panel. Uh, so, again, the, this this was very targeted because this was the they the Russians knew these were the kind of people who were there, and um, there was actually a Russian spy who was arrested, who was found uh, making sure that it was open that the people who Russia wanted dead were in that restaurant at the time or around the time, I suppose, and made sure that the targeting information was correct. So this was very specifically targeted at this pizzeria 
where these uh, foreign foreigners and Ukrainian journalists were located. Uh, with Victoria, there are also several Colombian writers, including the politician. So we sincerely hope that Victoria gets through it, but her family are being very hush-hush uh, about her status, very understandably. It's not everyone's business. But what is everyone's business is the what we hope the final closure to a um, very long-running tragic story, which is the murder of activist Katarina Hinzuk. Um, this is one of the more famous uh, stories of the murder of a well-known activist. Um, there have been uh, Kiev was plastered with who killed uh, Katya stickers, who killed Kate stickers for years and years and years. People would hold vigils. Um, outlets would write long screeds every single anniversary of her murder. Um, but that story has hopefully come to um, a somewhat satisfying close. Uh, so to recap, um, Katarina Hanzuk was a civil activist for Herson, um, who worked with the Herson's mayor office and was very critical of uh, corruption in the Herson regional government. Um, specifically, she was uh, she pointed out corruption um, involving illegal logging that was being facilitated. My members of the Herson Regional Counter uh, Council, including its chairman, um, this made this chairman and his cronies very, very angry, and they arranged for a acid attack against her, um, which burned uh, a good portion of her body. Uh, she was uh, not killed on the spot, but she kind of died very painfully in hospital um, after a few months of. Uh, a, a few months afterwards um, from this acid attack. Um, and while the government arrested the actual people who threw the acid, the kind of the, the assassination group that organized the actual throwing of the acid, um, the people who order it, the, the Herson Regional Council member and um, a couple of aides of his, um, they were uh, untouched for quite a while. But now they have finally been put to some kind of justice where um, Vladislav Manker, who was the head of the regional council, he's now been sentenced to 10 years in prison for his role in organizing and ordering um, Hanzuk's murder. And his aide, Alexei Levin, has also similarly been sentenced to 10 years. So uh, with those two in jail and facing these lengthy um, prison terms, uh, hopefully that is the end of the Hanzuk story, though her parents um, who have been who, who have kind of taken up the torch of uh, making sure that the people behind her murder are properly punished. They're not. Um, they've made comments to the media indicating that they are not completely satisfied with this. They think there are other people involved, um, but at least the, the two main people uh, behind this horrific murder are uh, now going to be facing uh, a very small cell for a very long time. And that way, I think we can we can say that the story is kind of reached a satisfactory ending. And um, most of all, I think it shows how far Ukraine has come in the last um, eight years since the Maidan. Uh, it's really uh, like th th this sort of sentence, um, which seems procedural, like, 
yeah, he they ordered the murder of a of a woman. They should be facing um, jail times. This sort of sentence was basically unimaginable prior to my dawn. Activists and journalists would be disappeared, beaten um, and murdered left, right and center. Uh, and while people may even know who did it, it was very rare for them to face any kind of consequences because they were mob bosses, politicians, powerful businessmen, and they could um, pretty much buy and sell court decisions on a whim. Um, with this case, it, it shows that this kind of thing is not possible. And uh, with the death of if you are a corrupt piece of shit that goes after an activist or a journalist or whoever, um, you can't simply rely on being able to buy your way out of it anymore. Um, there are real consequences that you will face for your actions. Yeah, so I'll just close off that story by saying that uh, Hersan had a bit of a reputation as being especially corrupt, even by Ukrainian standards. Um, and we saw the results of this during the Russian invasion. The former mayor of Hersan is now currently the head of the collaborationist government of the region. Um, Several officials within the region are likewise suspected of working with Russia, including uh, preventing the destruction of the the bridge into Kherson. That if that bridge had been blown up, the city might have been saved, but someone called off that order. Uh, the head of the the security services within that region is known to have worked with Russia. So. <sighs> The the issue with Hersan, the worst actors within that area are now either behind bars. These guys did not collaborate with Russia, actually, but others did. And if this war, if the one thing that comes from this war is that, you know, all these mafioso and horrible people end up um, on the Russian side and have to not be in Ukraine anymore, or in prison like these guys, uh, that is one thing that we can take from it. Uh, but moving on to some international topics, the first one that we want to look at is an uh, African peace delegation that came to Kiev and later on went to Moscow. This delegation was made up of South Africa, Egypt, Senegal, the Republic of the Congo, not the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but the Republic, Comoros, Zambia, and Uganda. Now, we don't like talking about these kind of conferences and delegations because they don't accomplish anything. And this one similarly did not accomplish anything. However, there was a lot of uh, anger from the Ukrainian public after the South African spokesman, uh, Vincent Maguena claimed that he did not hear explosions at a time when this city was directly under missile attack. Uh, when this missile attack from Russia was happening, people were commenting, well, finally, these, you know, these these foreign dignitaries will see what it's like to be in Kiev during these attacks, only to be bet by a spokesman saying, oh, this attack didn't happen, just completely lying flat out, though he was later contradicted. Uh, by other members of the of the delegation, including his boss, the president of South Africa. But overall, um, the South African, the, the this African delegation uh, gave a lot of kind of limp lips, uh, lip service to the ideas of peace in Ukraine. Then they go to Russia and the Russians were just better prepared to take them in and talk to them and fed them a bunch of lines of bullshit 
that they kind of passively passively let slip by. And in the end, it seemed like their main thing they wanted to accomplish was to get Putin taken off of the International Criminal Criminal Court's wanted list. Uh, They wanted that to be number one because they still want to work with Russia. And while Russia is headed up by a wanted war criminal who they are bound to arrest if he shows up in their country and he was supposed to show up in South Africa this summer, it makes their relations a lot harder. So they wanted to get him taken off of the the list. That seemed to have been their most concrete uh, proposal that they put forward. And of course, that was not acceptable. And we do eventually want to find someone who is more of an expert in uh, African-Russian relations onto the show, but that's a very niche <laughs> uh, academic field, I'm afraid. Yeah, if any of our listeners know someone like this, pass their names our way. We would love to interview them. Yes, because we have ideas of people we can talk about, you know, the, the black experience in Russia, that kind of thing. but. A foreign policy person specifically who knows a whole lot about South Africa and a whole lot about Russia at the same time. That'd be perfect. Uh, Raise your hand in the comments. Um, The other uh, international topic we have here is a prisoner exchange done through Hungary. So the um, well, we called it a prisoner exchange done through Hungary. That's not entirely accurate. Um, Hungary, as our listeners may know. Uh, doesn't have quite a um, big problem with Russia as most of the rest of Europe does. In fact, um, Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, uh, has been quite um, congratulatory and complimentary of Russia, even after the start of the full-scale invasion. Um, Hungary has often voted against resolutions to condemn Russia. They've stood in the way of Ukraine receiving EU military aid. Um, more than once, even financial aid. Uh, basically, Hungary is uh, is a fan or at least a, a casual supporter of the uh, Putin regime. And thus, um, so on June 8th, the Russian Orthodox Church of all organizations claimed that they had uh, handed over a number of uh, Ukrainian prisoners of war to the Hungarian authorities. Um, This was news to the Ukrainian government with a bunch of Ukrainian agencies, including the military intelligence agencies, um, including the ombudsman who is in charge of overseeing um, prisoner transfers. Uh, Pretty much everyone in the Ukrainian government said what we had never heard of this before. Um, Then Hungary's deputy prime minister, uh, Zolt Semyen, um, he confirmed that he had taken uh, or that Hungary had taken custodies of um, it was either 11 or 13 um, Ukrainian prisoners of war. The number kind of changed between tellings. Um, but what was more interesting is that the Hungarian government turned around and said, we have no idea what people are talking about. There has been no such transfer. Um, then uh, in an attempt to kind of cover their ass, the Hungarian uh, uh, government a day or a couple of days later announced that, oh, actually, um, 11 Ukrainian prisoners of war had been transferred from Russia, but it was the personal initiative of the deputy prime minister. Anyway, these 11 Ukrainians are completely free to talk to anyone and they can do whatever they want. 
Um, they're not being held in custody and everything's hunky dory and everyone should just forget about this whole thing. Um, but the thing is, the Ukrainian um, authorities said, no, actually, we still have not been able to contact these guys. They did confirm um, their identities and they uh, did confirm that these guys were in Hungary, but they said that they were not being allowed, that these prisoners were, were not being allowed contact with the Ukrainian consulate. Um, they were not being uh, provided with um, even a Hungarian lawyer. They were not being um, given uh, leave to speak to their families. They were basically still being held prisoner. And now we're talking about Ukrainian prisoners of war being held, uh, being detained by an EU member country after that EU member country received the prisoners um, from Russia. This kind of ballooned into a pretty large diplomatic fracas. Eventually, uh, on the 20th, Ukraine was able to um, gain to repatriate three of those um, prisoners of war, but um, presumably eight of them still remain in Hungary. Their status uh, has still not been publicly revealed. So as far as we know, there's still eight Ukrainian soldiers being held as prisoners in Hungary, despite Hungary's protestations that these guys are completely free to do whatever they want. You would think that would involve also them returning to Ukraine. However, as we can obviously see, these guys have not been able to um, even contact their own families to tell them they're uh, safe and they're all right. This has strained Hungarian-Ukraine relationships basically to the breaking point. It was never in a good place due to Hungary's kind of steadfast support of Russia. And But this latest incident has kind of um, made relations between Kiev and Budapest not not very good. I, I, I don't believe that those that if Hungary was not a member of the EU, that Ukraine would still have any sort of um, diplomatic relations with Hungary at all. Hungary, we've been talking about Orban and his connections to Russia this whole time, how he's kind of used his unassailable position within the EU and NATO to hurt Ukraine at every opportunity that he has had. Um, they are preventing Ukraine from as, make, taking further steps to European integration. And that's all been terrible, but you can't really do anything about it because that's kind of the rules of those organizations where they can, where any one member can uh, do whatever they want, essentially, and say no to anything they want to say no to. But this is so beyond the pale of what states are acceptably allowed to do to hold a prisoner of war from another country and pretend like it's nothing is, is like there needs to be some kind of serious sanction or something against the Hungarian government. And mind you, the Hungarian government has waffled between saying everything's fine, don't worry about it, and we have no role in this at all, um, which is difficult to believe considering this, these guys, A, would have to have crossed um, the Belarusian border into hung into an EU member state that is not Hungary um, because Hungary doesn't share a border with either Russia or um, Belarus. It's so a landlocked country. It's a landlocked country. That means someone must have okayed the transfer of these 11 Ukrainian POWs through an EU border with Belarus. So either 
Um, someone in the EU authorized this one, uh, a, a Belarusian or Russian marked um, aircraft to fly through European airspace or that they were physically handled over through the border to Poland and then trucked all the way to Hungary, um, presumably in cuffs, because, again, these guys are not free to leave. They are not free to contact their uh, their families. They are not free to contact the Ukrainian authorities. These guys are prisoners in the EU for no reason. And I'll cap that one off by saying that in one reply to this whole scenario, uh, the, the the Hungarian foreign minister, whose name I will not try to pronounce, sorry, Hungarians, your language is difficult. Instead of referring to the prisoners as Ukrainian, he specifically said Transcarpathian prisoners of war. Uh, this alludes to uh, Hungary's territorial claims over Transcarpathia in Ukraine, as well as other regions who were part of the Kingdom of Hungary before World War One, which Hungary's nationalist government is very frequently reminding its neighbors that they are historically a part of Hungary. And by saying Transcarpathian instead of Ukrainian, this was a soft claim by Hungary to Ukrainian territory. Uh, so it's... <sighs> This something has to be done about this government. Will nobody rid me of this meddlesome prime minister? But with that, we'll be ending this end of June news update. Um, our first episode of the month was an interview, then me talking about Herson, so we did not exactly talk about any of these news updates as they happened. So there's actually quite a lot more to say about each and every one of those, but we had a lot to go over. Uh, we'll, of course, be expanding on some of these. Like I said, the African uh, peace delegation issue opens up a lot of routes to talk about Ukraine in the, the world more broadly outside of its normal partners. Um, of course, we're very much keeping an eye on this evolving situation with the coup in Russia and something happening with Hungary. Hopefully in the future we can talk about. But with that... Uh, we will conclude this episode. If you would like to support us, please share us with your friends. Tell everyone you know about us. Give us them five-star reviews, thumbs up, subscribes. Comments are very good for the algorithm. If you'd like to support uh, Ukraine more broadly, of course, we have our link tree in the description that gives you a link to a bunch of NGOs and charities and such. And of course, if you'd like to support us financially, please go to patreon.com slash Ukraine Without Hype and join one of our tiers. And thank you very much to our patrons, Deborah Grazer, Will Stevens, David Shepard, Dawson, Giorgio, Ivanka Kratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Devi, Etienne, Jan, Jenny Louise, Justin Devendorf, Kevin Albritton, Michael Wickman, Mike Perone, Sam Toman, Sander Bongers, Shieldwall, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDonnell, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Bavona, Eric Honnold, Grace Kraus, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jerd, Julia Lindsay, Laura DeLeon, Levy Grove, Marguerite Marks, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, MJ Noster, Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, 
Sanjay, Scott Berry, Scott Gengris, Scott Tokaryuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, T. Bart, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica Aim, and Victoria Leontaneva. Thank you all very much to all of our supporters, listener or not. You are what make this show possible. And with that, uh, until next week, Slavu Ukraini. Garoim Slavu.